Today we talk about ICSI. I-C-S-I stands for Intracytoplasmic Sperm Injection. I'm Dr. Mark Amos, and this is Taco About Fertility Tuesday. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about ICSI is because I think the general view of ICSI is misunderstood. I think the average person thinks ICSI is better than standard insemination. And to the layperson, I would completely understand that. If you are injecting the sperm into the egg, how can that not be better than just putting the sperm next to the egg? However, when you look at the fertilization rate, you will find that standard insemination works better than ICSI. Now, this isn't always true. There are indications where ICSI is needed, and using standard insemination would actually lead to a lower fertilization rate. So let's start first with talking about what ICSI is. ICSI is using a very small microscopic hollow needle and placing that through the egg to inject the sperm directly into the egg. Now, the obvious purpose of this is to improve fertilization when the sperm count is very poor, such as if the count is low. However, there are other reasons for using ICSI, which we will get into later. ICSI is a fairly new procedure. IVF was founded in the 1970s, and in 1978, it was basically introduced. In 1978, the first live birth occurred secondary to IVF. The first live birth in the United States was in 1981, but ICSI wasn't even developed until 1990. It wasn't until 1991 that the first pregnancy occurred with ICSI. And not until 1992 was the first live birth from ICSI. When IVF was created, the purpose of IVF was to help women with tubal disease. IVF in the beginning did not have very good success rates. Matter of fact, it was a means to the end. It was only done because there was no other option. So prior to 1990, if you had severe male factor infertility and artificial inseminations would not work, your only real option was is to proceed with donor sperm. But ICSI changed all that. With ICSI, now men with severely low sperm counts could possibly get pregnant. Men who had no sperm, but who could undergo procedures to extract the sperm, such as a PESA or a TESI, could now get pregnant. ICSI changed IVF from not only being a treatment for tumor disease, but now a major treatment in male factor infertility. Personally, I'm truly thankful that I was born at a time when ICSI was around. Because if it wasn't, there'd be no way that I could have children myself. I'm so thankful to Dr. Palmero for developing ICSI. In my view, ICSI 
is one of the most important advances of IVF that we have ever had. As you will learn soon when we talk about indications, it is one of the reasons why egg freezing is now possible. It is one of the reasons PGD is now possible. So when should ICSI be used? One of the most common things are going to be sperm quality issues, such as the shape being abnormal, the motility being low, the count being low. But there are other reasons as well. One of the major categories is azospermia. Azospermia means there is no sperm. Now, this is further divided into what we call obstructive azospermia versus non-obstructive azospermia. Obstructive azospermia is going to be things that block the sperm from coming out, creating azospermia, no sperm. That would include things like a vasectomy, or if you had epididymitis and caused scarring. It would also include CBAVD, which stands for congenital bilateral absence of the vas deferens, which is a condition where men are born without the vas deferens, which is the connection between the testicle and the penis, to allow the sperm to be ejaculated. And sometimes that's associated with the loss of the seminal vesicles. So when men have CBAVD, they end up having very little volume with their ejaculate and no sperm. However, with non-obstructive azospermia, it is not an issue of blockage, but the testicle is actually not making the sperm. And that's concerning. Now, if it is due to the hormones being too low, such as low testosterone levels, due to a production issue, then sometimes we can give medications to increase that count and get sperm back. But most of the time, this is due to failure of the testicle. And this is concerning because we find sperm only about 50% of the time when doing procedure looking for sperm in this situation. The good thing is, is that with ICSI, we can have a few sperm, literally five or 10 sperm, and potentially we maybe will get you pregnant using ICSI. Now, other not so obvious reasons for ICSI would look at female issues, such as if a woman is using frozen sperm, then there's concern that sometimes when the sperm is thawed, it may not be as good. We know that you can lose up to half of the sperm when freezing it and then thawing it. The other indication would be if a woman is using frozen eggs. When you freeze eggs, the zona pellucida, which is a membrane that surrounds the egg, hardens and will not allow sperm into the egg. So without ICSI, no woman would ever be able to get pregnant with frozen eggs. But because of ICSI, we can penetrate that zona pellucida and put a single sperm into the egg and allow it to fertilize. The other female factor that would rely us to proceed with ICSI would be PGD, pregenetic diagnosis. This is now called PGTM. This is where we are testing the embryos to determine if the embryo has a genetic disease that is being passed along. 
The reason we need to use ICSI in this situation is that if we just put the sperm around the egg, and then when we go to do the biopsy from the embryo, the dead sperm is still attached to the zona pellucida. Inadvertently, the dead sperm can be picked up in the biopsy, and then extra DNA would be in that biopsy, potentially leading to erroneous results. For example, let's say the genetic issue was on the male side. Well, then, if a healthy sperm implanted embryo, but the abnormal sperm was present on the outside, and that abnormal sperm got picked up in the biopsy, you would have a result showing possible abnormal DNA, and that could potentially lead to the wrong diagnosis. Therefore, whenever you are doing PGD, or now called PGT-M, we always recommend using ICSI. Now, what about PGS? Do you have to do ICSI with that? The simple answer is no. They are able to tell the difference between the embryo DNA and inadvertent sperm picked up when doing PGS. So we do not have to use ICSI when performing PGS, but do need to use it when performing PGD. Now, we've talked about some of the obvious times that you would do ICSI and some of the special times that you would do ICSI, such as frozen eggs. But what about in unexplained infertility? What about with tubal disease? What about there's just a mild sperm problem? Is ICSI going to help you? Well, like we said in the beginning, it seems like it would. I mean, how could not putting the sperm directly in the egg help the fertilization? And I truly understand why someone would think that. But the problem is fertilization is not the process of the sperm getting an egg. Fertilization is the process of the DNA of the sperm combining with the egg. So we can put the sperm all day long into an egg. That doesn't mean it's going to fertilize. You may have heard my analogies before in the past when it comes to sperm. I always say sperm is like the pizza delivery guy. You don't care what the sperm looks like, just like you don't care what your pizza delivery guy looks like. What you care about is the pizza. The DNA in the sperm is the pizza. The delivery guy is the sperm. It's just a vector. When you do ICSI, all you're doing is letting that pizza guy into your house to put that pizza on your table. That doesn't mean the pizza's going to taste good. Well, the same thing, just because you let the sperm into the house, the egg, it doesn't mean it's going to fertilize. Now, fertilization is a very complex process that involves both the female DNA and the male DNA. So when we have failed fertilization, even with ICSI, we don't always know why. Now, if the male sperm is very severely poor, sometimes we wonder if then the DNA might be bad, basically the pizza being bad. But there can be times when it's also a female issue, such as a woman who is more mature may have poor egg quality, and that can be leading to lower fertilization. But the main point I want you to understand is, is that ICSI doesn't really make you fertilize better. It just guarantees the sperm gets in the egg. But in reality, when we put the sperm around the egg, there's actually a higher fertilization rate than doing ICSI. ICSI usually has around 70% 
fertilization. But when you read the statistics in most journals and studies, it's about 50 to 70%. Whereas standard insemination, putting the sperm around the egg, usually is above 80%. This is why we do not recommend it for things like tubal disease or unexplained infertility. However, when there are mild sperm issues, we tend to do ICSI. And the reason we're doing ICSI is not so much because we think it's going to help fertilization, but because of what we're worried about, failed fertilization. Other than IVF not working, one of the most scariest things when undergoing IVF, what if my eggs do not fertilize? If your eggs do not fertilize, you have nothing to show for IVF. You will just have eggs that have not fertilized and you can go no further. That's not only fearful for the patient, it is also a fear of the clinic. Although it may not be the clinic's fault, it is tremendously disappointing to tell a patient that nothing fertilized. So because of this, most clinics will end up doing ICSI if there is even a hint of concern of failed fertilization. So now we look at things like the concentration. If that is low, we'll do ICSI. If the motility is a little bit low, we'll do ICSI. If the forward progression, which is the way the sperm move, is a little bit low, we will do ICSI. And if the morphology, the percentage of sperm to have a perfect normal shape, is low, we will do ICSI. Out of all those parameters, I think morphology gets the most attention. I find many patients who are told to do IVF because their partner has severe morphology issues. As we've discussed in prior episodes, low morphology is not a reason to proceed with IVF. It is true that if you have low morphology, you should perform ICSI because there is a lower fertilization rate when the morphology is low. But that doesn't mean you can't get pregnant naturally when there's low morphology. And we discussed this because we said the sperm is filtered by the female reproductive tract. As I always say, the female reproductive tract is like the American Ninja Warrior course for sperm. Only the best of the best sperm will get there. So even if your morphology is low, the good sperm will still get there. But when it comes to IVF, there isn't a way for us to filter the sperm as well as the reproductive tract. And therefore, we perform ICSI. If there wasn't a risk of failed fertilization, almost no one would ever use ICSI other than in the times it's absolutely necessary, such as severe malfactor using frozen eggs, or PGD. But because we're all fearful of the fact that there could be failed fertilization, we tend to lean towards ICSI when there are any signs of concern. Now, that doesn't mean if there aren't issues that you can't have failed fertilization. You could have tubal factor disease. You could have a man who has a vasectomy or a couple who just wants to have family balancing, and want to do gender selection, and they can still have failed fertilization. There is absolutely no way to predict who will and won't have failed fertilization, and is why we have to 
use our best judgment when making that decision. But I don't want to scare you too much. In the situation of normal sperm, the chances of failed fertilization are 5%. That means 1 out of 20 couples. Now, when performing ICSI, there are several things that need to be done. First, you have to stabilize a mature egg using a holding pipette, using a very mild amount of suction. And then you have to turn the egg so that the polar body is going to be either at the 12 or 6 o'clock position. And the purpose of this is so you don't hurt the spindle apparatus that is used in the fertilization process to pull the DNA apart. Then you have to select your sperm. Now, different clinics use different techniques to filter the sperm, but in the end, the embryologist does have to pick a single sperm, and then they nick the tail so the sperm can't swim away, and then pull it into the hollow glass pipette to be able then to inject it into the egg. Now, when they inject the needle into the egg, they then have to pull some of the fluid, the ulema, into the needle to create a reaction. And then they inject the sperm into the egg and then remove the needle and repeat this again. In the wrong hands, this can cause damage. I'm pretty sure if I put my seven-year-old on there, you wouldn't have any embryos. However, in the right hands by a skilled embryologist, the success rate is very good, and most studies show that the live birth rate is no different than using standard insemination. So, in summary, what are the pros and cons of using standard insemination versus ICSI? Well, one of the most obvious is going to be cost. Usually, standard insemination is offered as part of the IVF package and usually doesn't cost an extra fee because clearly, who's going to be able to get pregnant if you don't put sperm with egg? So that is usually included. However, ICSI is usually not. And that usually is additional cost. Now, many clinics charge an exorbitant amount of money, usually between $1,500 and $3,000. And one of the tragedies is, is that we don't even know when we need to use it. So potentially you could be a couple who didn't know they needed ICSI and then at the last minute there's something wrong with the sperm and then they use, use ICSI and now you're out $3,000. Some clinic like ours, we only charge $500 because we want to make sure it's not an exorbitant expense. Now when you talk about the cons or the risk of each procedure, one of the cons or risk of standard insemination is the failure to fertilize. One thing you can say about ICSI is you know 100% that the sperm got into the egg. With standard insemination, you do not know that. But one of the things about ICSI is you can damage the egg, and it happens all the time. A small portion of eggs will degenerate after ICSI. Now, this doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the way the embryologist did the ICSI. This is most likely either something wrong with the egg or the fact that the egg just didn't survive the ICSI process. But the point is, it is not a procedure without some risk to the eggs. The second risk of ICSI is that it does increase the risk that your child, if male, may have 
male factor issues if that's why you did ICSI. And that kind of makes sense when you think about it. If you have a problem with low sperm count and you can't get pregnant naturally, then it makes sense that if you use a technique to inject your sperm into the egg, there's the possibility your son's going to need that too in the future. However, there are also certain genetic disorders that are on the male side that can also be increased through ICSI. Some studies have even shown a slightly higher risk of birth defects when using ICSI, although other studies did not find the risk of birth defect to be any higher than the risk already associated with being infertile and proceeding with IVF. When it comes to the benefits, obviously ICSI benefits people who have severe male factor. ICSI is going to benefit people who have failed IVF in the past due to failed fertilization. ICSI has to be used when using frozen eggs. And it has to be used when doing PGD. But where standard insemination may not have the power of ICSI, it does benefit people who are poor responders. Because if you make fewer eggs, then you may not be wanting to take the risk of doing ICSI and possibly harming the eggs if you only have few chances. And so I would definitely err on the side of standard insemination when you can. But again, if the parameters recommend ICSI, I would then still do ICSI. Overall, ICSI is an amazing technique. It has allowed me to have my children. It has allowed many men to have children who never would have. I've had many couples and men look me directly in the eye and say, I couldn't have had a kid without you. And really, they couldn't have a kid without ICSI. So if you're going through IVF, hopefully this helped you understand why you should or shouldn't use ICSI. But most important is listen to your doctor. I always recommend let the laboratory determine if you need ICSI or not. I hope everyone is doing well during this coronavirus pandemic. I look forward to talking to you all again next week. And as always, I always appreciate any reviews and getting the word out about our podcast. I look forward to talking to you all again next week on Talk About Fertility Tuesday. Fertility Tuesday.